This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R, and I hope you enjoyed the team from Radiotherapy who have brought us through to 11 o'clock. We've got you now for an hour of science, and today we have a very special show that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But in the studio with me is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. And uh, Dr. Laura. Good morning, Shane. Not on a plane for a change. I'm here for at least a month. <laughs> Jeez, well, been, that sounds like you've been grounded. Yeah, I've been grounded. But I'm excited to come in and learn something today. Yeah. I think I will. Yep, that'd be good. And Dr. Linden. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Now, you've been uh, conspiring with me over the last week or two to put together a very special show today. Why don't you give us a bit of a roundup of what we're doing? Yes, Dr. Shane. Today is everything citizen science. Now, I don't know if, if many of the listeners know about this term. For me, it's a term that you hear more and more about in the last few years. It's becoming more and more common, more and more popular. Uh, but, you know, people, different people have different ideas about what it is, mm. what it means for scientific research, what it means for the general population to be involved in science and how people can get involved. So I thought National Science Week's just a couple of weeks away. We've got a great new chapter of citizen scientists that have all banded together across Victoria to kind of make a group, a community of practice. And I thought... Let's just have a bit of a chat about it on a Sunday morning. Sounds good. I mean, I, I think back to my sort of first interactions with this stuff, citizen science, full stop in my life. And mm-hmm. one was as an amateur astronomer myself, you know, this is an area of science that's done by often people who have no scientific background at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you know, many of the um, near Earth objects that would potentially collide with Earth have actually been discovered by and, and and comets and other things have been discovered by non-professional scientists in the backyard. Okay. And the other, of course, is how the Bureau of Meteorology collects a lot of its data. Yes. And for a long time I've, I've been aware of, and we've had people on the show who've been, you know, on the farm somewhere and been doing rain gauge data for the last, you know, three generations of mm. their, their farm. And that sort of stuff is pretty interesting. And they're not necessarily trained Tra- meteorologists. That's they're right. just trained citizen scientists. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you generally think, I mean, I know our guests will talk about this a little bit later, but my idea of citizen science is uh, non-professional scientists being involved in the scientific process, mm. any component of it from uh, preparing an experiment, collecting the data, analysing the data, all those sorts of things. And before, you know, about the mid-19th century, lots of scientific fields that we now know as professional scientific yeah. fields, meteorology, for example, That's all they were. was only for enthusiastic amateurs, for mm. gentlemen scientists who weren't trained. They were just super keen. Yeah, super keen. Mm. Well, we're super keen today. In the studio with us already is Caitlin Griffin. She is from the Victorian National Parks Association. Caitlin, thanks for joining us here on Triple R. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I was literally listening to your show a few weeks ago and went, wouldn't it be great if they did a citizen science <laughs> show? That'd be fabulous. <laughs> what a coincidence. And then it came across Lyndon the other week at um, a chapter meeting and she said you were doing it, so great. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. We want to talk about some of the programs because you're in the not in the citizen scientist class, I suppose you're in the coordinating of these programs class. So first of all, the Victorian National Parks Association, tell us a bit about that organisation, what does it do? So the Victorian National Parks Association is one of the oldest nature conservation organisations in the state. We've been around for 66 years now. We're a not-for-profit, non-government organisation. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not involved in actually managing the parks on the ground. We're actually okay. a, um, a, a, a organisation that does, well, we have three main things that we do. We do campaigning and advocacy. 
Yep. So um, for some people, they may have uh, may have remembered to say things like the Hands Off the Prom campaign. We were a lead mm. organisation in that. Um, we were an organisation involved in campaigning and advocating for the creation of marine protected areas yep. along Victoria's coastline. So that campaigning and advocacy is one of the things we do. The second thing that we do is we have a whole lot of community learning and engagement programs. So that includes our two citizen science programs, which is Reef Watch and Nature Watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also have one of the largest bushwalking clubs in the state, which is all volunteer run right. and led. So, and, and on that, I mean, how, how big is this association? How many people are sort of involved in the, in, I guess, the program elements of it? <clears throat> in the, so there, we have around um, sort of 9,000 supporters um, with the organisation. So that includes, you know, people who are who receive our information, people who volunteer, that sort of thing. Um, in the office, we have around 10 or 12 staff. So it's quite mm. small from a staff perspective, yeah. but from a supporter perspective, we're actually quite a lot larger and cast a much larger shadow, yeah. I guess, yeah. Now, let's talk about a couple of the projects because um, these, are, these are the ones I suppose you, you spent most of your, your time on. But um, let's go with Nature Watch first. What, what exactly is that and, and how do you get people involved? So Nature Watch has been around for 11 years now mm-hmm. um, and we uh, have a, a small suite of citizen science projects and we use a citizen science model. Now, there's, there's a few different citizen science models that are sort of largely accepted so there's um, co-creator, which is where you really get everyone involved in basically most steps of the scientific process of getting this, the project established. So the steps involved in setting up citizen science projects, they're the same, um, but it's about what steps you get the community involved mm-hmm. in. So um, we actually, so with um, Nature Watch, we actually have probably a co-created citizen science model. Um, the other models are collaborative and then um, p- sort of partici- participatory ones as well. So we really use that. We use what we call a triangle mm-hmm. model. And so we're bringing together land managers, um, community groups and scientists and we work with those groups to actually come up with local questions that are relevant in that local area and then we use method we use we use similar methods from site to site um, but we'll try and have a, a really locally relevant question so for example um, we've been we've worked out in the wombat state forest using camera traps for about for I think this is our seventh year now that we've been out there mm-hmm. using camera traps out there and we have um, and we're addressing a local question around fire um, in that particular area. So we're looking at mammals and we're looking at fire and we've done that with local community group Wombat Forest Care. We've had um, a scientist, Richard Loyne, involved with the scientist and the department have really helped us from a land management perspective. So we've brought all those groups together and the community are out there collecting the data, but the community have been involved in multiple steps along the way mm-hmm. as well. So how does that work, Caitlin? If some, if you have a project idea, where does that spawn from? Do you guys think, oh, it would be interesting to study this or does a community come to you and say we want to study this we're not sure how to go about it can can we work with you to build up an experiment essentially and run it as far as all our projects go it's probably a mix it's been a mix of all those different things um with that one for example we actually started working with the arthur ryla institute and they suggested that the wombat forest would be a great place to start because they would they had been doing some similar research out there with the community group out there they had some really interesting sites established so it was a great place to start so that's how that's how we got that particular one established but they all have different ways that they that they come about mm-hmm. and what sort of data and so forth do you get the community groups to gather and how do you how do you get them to the point where that data is of a reasonable quality that we can believe in it because this is one of the you know the biggest issues with you know data in any field is the variability and just how you know 
I suppose the the question is how valid the data is relative mm. to other data forms that might be collected in different ways. So, I mean, yep. talk us through that. So the way that we've addressed that is um, we have worked on, so it's multiple observer bias essentially mm. when it comes to citizen science. Like some citizen scientists are highly, highly skilled and knowledgeable. So sometimes they will have an amazing knowledge of whatever, what the mammals are. Some people will, some people won't. But you've got, when you've got multiple observers, that's really, largely what the issue is. So we have deliberately selected, um, I guess, the information that we ask the community to collect. Um, It doesn't have... It has a minimal amount of judgment in Mm. it. So, for example, with the the camera traps, we're collecting... We're getting photos. And they are verifiable records at any point in time, essentially. So um, anyone can look at that image later on and check that. Um, But also out in the Wombat Forest, we do do habitat assessments, but we actually have a much smaller group of people who are involved in collecting the habitat assessments. So we just have, say, two or three people who go out and do those assessments, who look at what, you know, how many hollows there might be, that sort of thing. So Mm. when we're getting more judgment, we just have a smaller group of people. um, But when there's not the same level of judgment, we can have a much larger people mm. group of people involved. And so what about ReefWatch, the other pro- main citizen science project that you have? Is that similar? Are you looking for shark hollows and, and photos of different types of reefs, the same, same method? Um, ReefWatch is, quite, is actually quite different. Um, it's come from a different background. But at the moment, we're actually really working on getting the two programs to learn a bit from each other because they both have um, really different or they both have had really different strong points um, in the past. So with the Caught on Camera project out in the Wombat and and our other areas, we probably have about 50 people involved in a year, whereas last year we had the Great Victorian Fish Count and we had 700 people or more do the Great Victorian Fish Count last year. So that's a really broadly engaging project. It gets a lot of people involved. Um, The methods don't take quite the same intensity of training, so a lot more people can be involved. There's a lot more... Um, groups out there who can actually deliver the Great Victorian Fish Count so we can get a much larger suite of people out there collecting information. Um, but we have, oh, we have a few different projects with ReefWatch and we, we're working on using that triangle model with ReefWatch as well with a new project um, in the area. So looking at um, muscle, uh, muscle and oyster recruitment. Mm. Um, but I'm not an expert on that, so you don't need to ask me about right, muscle and oyster recruitment. I've got to ask... What is the Great Victorian Fish Count? Because right in my eye, I'm like, is it people counting? Is it an excuse to go fishing? I mean, how, what are the methods you actually do for a fish count for so, somebody that doesn't even fish? <laughs> uh, so with the Great Victorian Fish Count, it's snorkeling and diving. So you take, so basically people get given, it's an underwater slate with a pencil. It's all waterproof. So you go out um, with a community group or with a dive operator, you go out and you take these slates with them and they record there's 35 species of fish on there. There's much more species that they will, that they could see, but these are the ones that we're really interested in. And so they will record basically something along the lines of one, some or lots of that particular species. Um, <laughs> um, so so they'll, so they'll circle it when they're out in the water doing the survey. We'll get that um, information recorded as one survey for each group. So one group might have 12 people in it. Essentially, they're doing one survey. That comes back to us what, what species they've recorded out there. And then mm. where do those data go? So that data for that particular project has been going into the Atlas of Living Australia mm-hmm. and we also collated into an annual report as well and that's really I mean that particular project that's a real snapshot project it's very broad scale it's a snapshot um so as far as the science outcomes it's it's snapshot broad brush 
survey mm. approach. Yeah. And Caitlin, how do you go about sort of recruiting people into this? Because I mean, I have a whole lot of people trying to sell paintings to me at my front door and, and you know, different types of energy and telecommunications, but I've never really had someone sort of come and say, hey, there's this, you know, these community programs you can be involved with. I mean, how, how does that work? Because, I mean, we're aware of it here, but how do people become aware of it and, and get involved in these sorts of programs? Um, so, say for something like the Great Victorian Fish Count, um, there's actually numerous um, community groups. So, say, for example, there's um, Jawbone Marine Care Group or you know, there's a myriad of groups across the coast who have people involved with their group. Mm-hmm. Then there's also dive operators. So they actually all get people involved in the fish count at their particular sites. Um, with something like Nature Watch, it's through, it's through our mailing list, it's through mm. social media, um, it's through word of mouth. That's really how we get, mm. we get people involved and participating in it. Mm. And how did you get involved in this, Caitlin? I mean, did you come to this from a science background? Do you come from this more from a community engagement conservation space? What's your story? So my story, I mean, I guess when I became involved in citizen science is when I became the coordinator of the Nature Watch program, which was back in 2007. Um, so I'm now actually looking after a small team at the VNPA doing Reef Watch and Nature Watch. But um, so I was the Nature Watch coordinator for about eight years, but that's actually how I became involved and became really aware. And back at that point in time, we didn't call it citizen science. We called it community monitoring. Hmm. Um, citizen science has been a good, um, I guess, term to sort of bring all these different types of projects together. Um and I had a science, a science background and a real passion for um, working with people, essentially. Um, and I've come across a lot of scientists, um, particularly more and more so recently, who are really interested in this sort of space and saying, I love my science, I've got my PhD, I want to work with, but I really want to work with people in mm. science and citizen science is a great way to do that. And I guess, essentially, that's how I've ended up in it and why I'm so passionate about it, because I love the, all those things. Bringing those things together is a lovely thing. Sounds good to us. Caitlin, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. And uh, we're going to hear a lot more about some of the citizen science programs going around, around uh, Victoria in a few minutes with our other guests. But uh, great to chat to you. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, Caitlin Griffith is from the Victorian National Parks Association. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with a couple more guests uh, talking about the same topic. Three. Triple. You are listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is our next two guests to talk about citizen science, which uh, Dr. Linden set up for us. He spent a lot of time on this. We have Farm Chaka, who's from the Port Phillip Eco Centre, and we also have Tess Hayes from the EPA, uh, Victoria. Uh, welcome, both of you, to Triple R. Thanks. Thank you. Now, uh, I might start with you because uh, part of what you do is a whole lot of work on how to reconnect people to science and nature and so forth. Tell us a little bit about the, the projects you're working on and how you go about you know, yanking people back into science and so forth. Yeah. <laughs> yanking them back into science. I'm so going to use first? that one next time. <laughs> um, yeah, so at the Eco Centre, we've been doing citizen science projects for a, for a while. Mm. And the goal of, of what we do is not just connecting people with science, again, but to get people out there on the beaches observing nature and recording what they find. And we use that data to then generate change um, in any way we can. And sometimes we use it for advocacy as well. So mm. we use the data that they gather in their local, on their local beach or in their local park um, 
to um, to help create change in government, and that could be a local government or in state government even as yeah. well. Yeah. And and what about? Uh, well, w- one way I'm thinking about this is you know I love going out into national parks and nature and stuff, but when I go out, I mean, I'm a scientist. When I go th- go out there, I don't really. Th- think scientifically. I don't. I go out there to get away from the other stuff in a way. But you're, you're bringing the two together. I mean, how do you make that transition for people that, you know, when they go out into these environments, they start seeing them in a very different way? Yeah, they do. But there's always there's always kind of a hook that, that gets people really interested in doing a little bit more than just walking in nature. It's mm. usually, uh, it usually actually starts with anger. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, we work, we work a lot in the plastic pollution space. Right. And we work a lot on the shores of Port Phillip Bay and with waterways at the, at the eco-centre. And so the people who usually come and engage with us are people who who love going out into nature, but they're seeing all of this plastic pollution on the shores, mm. you know, of Port Phillip Bay and in the waterways, and they're they're frankly quite tired of it, and they want to do something about it, and that's where um, that's where they come to us, and we we can engage them. And, and how bad is that problem? I mean, I, I know I go fishing a little bit on the bay. You know, it's a beautiful environment. And I do see, you know, especially coming out of um, Mornington and so forth, you see stuff seems to wash up on that shoreline a fair bit. Every day. Yeah. And it amazes me just the variety of stuff, you know, ranging from, you know, thongs to, you know, bits of surfboards to you know, whatever else. I mean, I've seen all yeah. sorts of stuff washing up there. Weird stuff that I, I wouldn't have thought should be anywhere but on a mountain that's covered in snow or stuff like, you know, like this weird, weird stuff, like how the hell does this get to sea level? Um, but all sorts of stuff. I mean, how bad is that problem in something like the Bay where we're, we're relatively protected from the external ocean shoreline too? Yeah, and that's, you touched up on the crux of the problem actually because Port Phillip Bay is so isolated really. Mm. I mean, the Port Phillip heads are really the only yeah. way just time out, right? Yeah. Um, so all of the rubbish is, that flows into Port Phillip Bay comes from the suburbs. It comes from mm. you know the four and a half million people that live in Melbourne. And uh, well, how bad is the problem? Um, we've been doing a lot of research with the help of citizen scientists, with the help of community groups, um, to kind of start to quantify that. And uh, we just launched a report about microplastics pollution in the Yarra and Maribyrnong rivers um, of a, a project called Clean Bay Blueprint, and that shows us that eight hundred and 28 million pieces of plastic pollution flow into the bay annually just from the first 20 centimeters of the water column. Wow. Yeah. Is that and, right? Yeah. And like we, the, the people that we work with, the volunteers who come up to us and say, I want to help with this research. How can I help? You know, they've spent countless hours of their free time yeah. analyzing these samples that we pull out of the rivers. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, they have been just doing an amazing job. And it's their passion for the environment and their, their passion to want to see change mm. that drives them to yeah. participate in these kinds of citizen science The Mar- Maribyrnong River part doesn't surprise me because I grew up in the West and there were places where you were told not to fish because there were too many cars. You'd get hooked. Yeah. <laughs> and what do, you, what do you say to people who are listening now and say, yeah, this is a massive problem, this is terrible. How do I start? How do I get involved? Well, the best way to get involved is just to kind of look at yourself and your own plastic use. So what I really like, um, what I really like to challenge people in is to do, for example, the Plastic Free July Challenge. I know we're now in August, but a lot of people are getting on board with this, which is a challenge where you just challenge yourself to not use any single-use plastics for a month or at least as little as possible. And that really opens people's eyes to actually the amount of plastic they are using and how challenging it can be to wean yourself off that, you know, of that habit, really. And that is 
that is the thing that we need to do as as a population here in Australia or in the world really is to wean ourselves off our plastic habits because 10% of plastic that we use will get out into the environment so the only way we can really prevent that is from is by stop using it ourselves so much mm. yeah so I know one of your other projects, fam, is uh, about looking at pollutants that you can't actually see so much. Well, both of you work on citizen science projects looking at observations for things that are invisible. Can you tell us a bit more about that project? Yeah, so we, uh, we have partnered up with uh, RMIT University with their nanotechnology lab, and they are researching... Um, the effects of sunscreen chemicals in temperate waters on wildlife. Um, so this is a citizen science grant that was given out by the federal government a year ago. And um, basically, with the help of, of community volunteers, we take water samples and uh, in three different places in the bay, in Rye, in Elwood and St Kilda, and those water samples then go to the lab at RMIT and the researchers there. Uh, they research what kind of chemicals are in there and also what kind of chemicals of the sunscreen that that are in those samples are actually harmful to phytoplankton. And phytoplankton are these small animals in the bay that are the basis of the food chain, basically, in, in Port Phillip Bay. Um, because there's been a lot of research already done worldwide on sunscreen chemicals and their mm. effects on tropical in tropical waters. Um, it's not great news. Uh, but it's never been done in temperate waters before. So this is this is a first, and certainly a first in Australia. Mm. Now, Tess, uh, I want to sort of pivot across to you now, because you, you coordinate some of the programs that are being done in the Latrobe Valley. Tell us um, yes. why the Latrobe Valley, and, and what, what are some of the key sort of programs you're looking after? Uh, so, I guess in terms of your question, why the Latrobe Valley? Uh, so, a few years ago, there was the Hazelwood Mine Fire. Mm. So, the Latrobe Valley is a community who have been affected that by poor air quality in the past, yeah. and so we're, try we're trying to work really hard to engage with that community, and the way that we have been doing that is through citizen science. So one of the current projects that I'm running at the moment is called the Latrobe Valley Citizen Science Dust Study, and so we're looking at dust. Mm. And interestingly, dust has been a big issue in the valley. Uh, and we're working on this project due to community interest. Uh, they have concerns about dust because they see it um, on their cars and on their verandas. And, and in their lungs, presumably. Yes. Would so, be a concern. So people yeah. are really interested yeah. in their respiratory health. Yeah. Um, and we get a lot of pollution reports about dust as well. And what, what's the source of... I mean... You know, we all encounter dust. Yes. It's, it's annoying. But yes. um, but this is this must be something else. I mean, something else going on. Yeah, so if we're looking at the source, uh, that's the aim of the project mm. or one of the aims of the project. So uh, people are concerned about whether this dust might be from coal processes because mm. the Latrobe Valley has a lot of coal-fired power plants. Uh, but th there's a lot of sources of dust. A lot of things contribute to dust, both natural and industrial sources. So... What we're going to do is we're going to people are going to set up personal sampler pumps in their homes uh, and outside their homes, but we're also going to take samples at different sources around the Latrobe Valley. And so through this project, we hope to understand what is the dust, where is it coming from, and how much of it is there. Mm. So Tess, who are the? I know Doctor. So Doctor Laura was talking before about 
what sort of demographic or who are the kind of people who are involved in these citizen science projects? Uh, Farm was saying before that a lot of people are motivated by anger and maybe it's the same in the Latrobe yeah. Valley. But what's the, what are the demographics like? Who are these people who are going to set up this stuff in their backyard? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, I think that it's been really interesting to see the demographics that do get involved in citizen science and our citizen science because it is a range of people. And, yeah, like Pam said, that it is sometimes angry people people are concerned about what they're breathing or the state of the environment so in my previous project which was called caring for waterhole creek which was a water quality monitoring project we were taking water samples in a creek um and a lot of people really cared about this area because it went through it went through the town of Morwell, which is sort of the central part of Latrobe Valley, and a lot of people walk along there. And so it's, it's people who they're actually engaging with the environment every day and they can see that it's not right and they want to do something about it or they want us to do something about it. Um, but in the valley, it is people who want to know, is it safe to breathe the air? Mm. They're actually looking at their health, the health of their family. Should they be doing something differently? Um, and so through our citizen science projects, we, I guess, try to engage on the science be behind the work that EPA does. Mm -hmm. So um, environmental regulation and protection. And as well, we seek to, I guess... Get the, in, the, get the community involved in environmental stewardship. Mm. It, it would seem to me, Tess, and, and Farm, you might want to comment on this as well, that there's an incredible potential workforce there with schools as well, primary and yes. secondary. And, yep. you yeah, know, what, what, what better way to get kids engaged in both science, which, you know, is what we're trying to do here on this show, but also also understanding the impacts of, of our lives on, on the environment as well. I mean, how much do you, do you both interact with schools and school programs? Definitely. Um, so... In my projects, I guess we're trying to engage more with schools. Uh, there is one great project that's coming up in the Latrobe Valley. It's actually um, a CSIRO project, mm -hmm. um, which is they're actually going to build uh, air quality sensors in schools, um, and EPA is going to help with facilitating right. that project. Yep. And so I think that schools are yeah a great source um, of these people who are starting to understand the environment um, and can be our future leaders as well. Mm. Fun. Yeah, the Eco Centre does a lot of engagement with schools. We work yeah. with over 180 schools oh, wow. all over Victoria. How um, many schools are in Victoria? I thought it was only about 300. Oh, That's going to be half of them. <laughs> yeah, like we work with schools a yeah. lot. We have a very, very talented education team. Um, and what we do is we get people to come uh, to the Eco Centre and we take them to the beaches on excursions. And a lot of the themes of those excursions are science. Mm. So we, um, we engage them in the citizen science monitoring that we do. And we talk about, especially with the secondary students, we talk a lot about experimental design, about the importance of doing monitoring over a longer period of time and why that is. And also, you know, if you are looking at shells and recording what you find, how can you use that information to become a better steward for the yep. environment and to create the change that you want to see? And, and what about, one, one of the words I've heard a lot, you know, having two kids in school, incursion. You know, which I, th I thought was something invading the school when I first heard it. But, but, you know, this idea of actually taking the stuff into the schools. I mean, it's one thing to bring the students out. But, you know, this is costly for a lot of schools. And, you know, you work out how much a bus costs and it's problematic for schools to do too many of these. How much of that sort of stuff are you, are you both doing? 
Well, I think in terms of that, it's important that if you're going to run citizen science programs where you're involving schools, it has to really fit in with the curriculum mm. and so that schools don't actually have to take extra steps to be involved yep. with these projects. Yep. We have to actually make it easy um, and engaging and appropriate. Mm. We do um, two different incursion models. So we do Tomorrow's Leaders for Sustainability and we do Resource Smart Schools. And the last one, I think, is a state government initiative as well, uh, where we have our educators going into the schools and delivering those programs. And we help the schools to um, make a smaller ecological footprint. So yeah. the students themselves look at their water use, they look at their electricity use, and how can they, how can they do things better? And how can they make a small ecological footprint uh, for their own schools? So they learn a lot about science, about measuring, about variables, all that sort of thing. Mm, sounds yeah. great. Um, we're going to take a break in the moment. So thank you both so much for, for coming in. Uh, it's, it's really great to hear all these programs going on and um, keep it up. Thanks. Thank you. Farm Chucker is from the Port Phillip Eco Centre and Tess Hayes is from the Victorian EPA. We're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our final two guests for today, also talking about citizen science. And one of them is actually a citizen scientist, so that should be fun. Three. Hey, you're listening to 3 R. It's our Citizen Science Show today. We're doing this uh, in particular because uh, I'm not sure if you've worked it out yet, folks, but the Radiothon for this year has a science theme to it. <coughs> so this is the gradual, very slow build-up to... Uh, was it two weeks away? Not long. Uh, in the studio with us now, though, is Richard Akers. He's from Melbourne Water and also one of our citizen scientists, Elizabeth Walsh. Welcome, both of you, to the Triple R studio. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, Richard, we're going to start with you. Uh, before We're going to unload on Elizabeth because she's like the actual citizen scientist we have in here today, which is going to be fun. But uh, Melbourne Water, I mean, uh, people, you're, you're the Water Watch coordinator there. What, yep. does, what does that mean? Do you just watch people using water all day? <laughs> yeah, we watch the Water Watchers. Yeah. <laughs> binoculars yeah that's right yeah. yeah yeah so, so essentially um uh our team of water watch coordinators run a range of different programs that are looking at different uh aspects around waterway health mm -hmm. uh so we have people that are involved in water quality monitoring uh so looking at things like salinity salinity levels ph levels uh things like nutrients uh, phosphates and things yep. coming down water uh we also have people that are out there um doing frog surveys so elizabeth is one of our uh, long-term uh frog monitors yep uh we um have people that are out there monitoring um um, platypus populations, new technology like environmental DNA. Yep. Uh, and we have some um, macroinvertebrate surveys as well. So the water bugs that are living in the waterways um, give us a really good indication of um, how, how well the waterways are essentially tracking in terms of their well-being. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I've always found amazing is, you know, Melbourne, and this is, you know, not just Melbourne water, as in you guys, but Melbourne has great water. I mean, if you've been to Adelaide, you realise Melbourne has great water, right? We just and went to the um, the Adelaide uh, conference for the um, Citizen Science Association. Yeah, drink up. And, uh, oh, man, it was challenging. <laughs> <laughs> but we have incredible... I mean, why is that? I mean, I've always wondered, why is it that Melbourne as a city has such a great water supply compared to other cities in Australia that, frankly, have really disgusting water supplies? A lot. Uh, the big reason for that is because we have protected catchment areas. Okay. So we have forested catchments where we're catching um, all that drinking water into our large reservoirs mm -hmm. uh, and so because we've got the forest essentially acting as a sponge and a filter system uh, as the rainfall comes down there's not much chance for anything to really get in there and impact on the quality of the water and we don't have to do much treatment at all to make it safe for drinking right. purposes so we've trained our kangaroos in victoria not to go to the bathroom near the catchment areas is that <laughs> we've tried to they still do it so we yeah. do have to do a little bit of cleaning because it still amazes me you know i see people 
coming out of the supermarket. So this morning, this guy coming out of the supermarket with like a 30-pack of water bottles, and I'm thinking, <laughs> all I see is plastic and stuff you can get out of the tap, which is better. That's right. It's and a lot of time with those water bottles, it's probably come out of the tap in the first place. Well, anyway. that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, someone's tap. Someone's filling it up around the back of a... Anyway, um, and, and in terms of, I mean, how much... Does Melbourne Water coordinate these activities? I mean, what, what sort of workload is that for you guys to actually, you know, go out there and coordinate all these citizen science type activities? Uh, it's, it's quite a bit of work. And we've got about uh, five staff members in our team mm-hmm. that are, um, you know, coordinating a whole range of people across Melbourne. Uh, and so that's that's one of the real benefits of having people in the communities involved in a lot of this monitoring is because simply our staff would not be able to cover the range of places and the number of sites that our volunteers go out to. Yep. So it's um, the, the volume of data that comes in from people being involved um, is just enormous compared mm. to what we could get otherwise. And, and if I wanted to be one of these volunteers, you know, living out northwest of the city, I mean, what would that mean? What sort of, would you supply equipment? Would you supply training? How, how does that work? Yeah, so it really depends on which program that you get involved in. Um, and so if you're after just a really, really easy activity to get involved in, uh, you could look at something like our Frog Census, where it's mm-hmm. as simple as just downloading our Frog Census app yep. uh, on both iTunes and um Google, Google Play. (laughs) Uh, It's a free app uh, and essentially all you need to do is you go out to your local waterway and just record any frog calls that you hear. Um, And um, that's it. You send it in um, and we've got, um, you know, verification by consultants to make sure that all of our data is kind of correct. You get to see where your um, record comes up on the map and, um, yeah, you can see where everyone else is recording frogs as well. So there's... And maybe, Elizabeth, you're part of this program. You can speak to this. (laughs) I was was actually watching a video on this frog um, census and how difficult is it? How long are you there with your with your smartphone listening for these frogs oh. are you there for a while uh, you can be up there for five minutes with the tape rolling but we don't tend to do that because we know our frogs well and we walk around and when we hear them calling again then we'll put it on because our ears are trained to heal. so do you know to go to a certain area where there's going to be a certain species of frogs yes. and then you're there with your phone we have three different areas and we do them on one night a month yeah throughout the year I love this. I was thinking how smartphone apps must have really changed everything for, you know, for the, for the ability of people to get involved in these programs so easily. And also to verify data as yeah, well. I mean, exactly. we were talking before about lots of different people recording data for different reasons, but if you've got an app and if you've got verifiable information, then it makes it much more reliable from a scientific point of view. Yeah, well, the app has made it, like, a lot easier for us um, in terms of the organisation managing the data, but I will also it's probably a lot easier for people like, people like Elizabeth uh, in terms of the um, work that's involved in actually um, sending in those reports in the yeah. first place. So, so Elizabeth, with, with the frog count stuff, I mean, tell us, why do you do it? I mean, what's the, what's the motivation? I mean, I, I've, I've wandered down, you know, um, Organ Pipes National Park and, I, you know, you hear frogs there all the time and I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, there's frogs there. But the idea of actually going there and recording this, I mean, what's the driver for you? What, what, what is it you love? I, I've always loved the environment. I've always loved wildlife. Uh, I trained as an animal technician mm-hmm. with native wildlife particularly. And I see the changes happening In the 70s, I I used to go out with the mammal survey group up in the high country. You know, we were trying to protect the Leadbeater's possum. That same problem exists to this very day. I cannot understand how a government can not look after our forest better. And the same thing happens with the water and the frogs. Frogs are like the canary in the mine, Mm. if there aren't any frogs there. And we are in Bayside, which is a very sandy area. So water is a really consistent problem. Uh, there's, we were just talking how it, this is even drier this season than the previous drought, the mm-hmm. millennium drought. We are not getting water in our water tanks. 
the ponds are not full, our pobblebonks will not breed unless they have about 30 centimetres of water. Well, yes, we have. And can mm. I ask what you're finding? Are you finding less frogs overall or a dominance of what certain species of frogs and a, a loss of, you know, another particular species? We're a little limited in the species we have in our area, but there's less of them and they're becoming less areas. We used to check a lot of other areas, but we found that they're not calling in some of those now. Mm. Elizabeth, can I ask about the experience of working with a larger organisation like Melbourne Water? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and surely if you could keep your own records at home, that might sort of bring you satisfaction. But what do you, what do you think it is about working with a larger group is that, is that a good thing or is that kind of annoying? It's great to have support because as at a local level we spend a lot of time trying to get community engagement occurring. So to have a larger group like Melbourne Water, they've provided us with equipment which has been invaluable because I'm also involved in water bugs, microbats and mm. every other animal that we have around. So... Yeah. yeah. And the, the, how, sorry. Don't oh, no, I was just going to say that I, I wanted to get onto the bats because I, I just, I'm a huge fan of bats, all sorts of bats. I just think as creatures go, they're up there with the platypus, really weird and wonderful. I mean, what, what sort of, um, what, what's involved with them? Because they're, they're much harder, presumably, to sort of to track and identify and, and even to, I mean, sounds fun, but to reach. I mean, they're not, they're not at ground level. They are much more exciting. My friends who are involved in weeding and that say, why can't we get volunteers to do weeding? You get volunteers to come <laughs> and do weird and wonderful things. Yeah. But if you get a group of people out and we get families, we get children, we get a single adults, we have all the ranges, including mm. even teenagers. And to walk out in the dusk and night and you have a little box that is recording their sounds, which are very high-pitched above our hearing, mm. down they monitor down into your uh, anabat mm -hmm. and it beeps. And you say, that's a flying mammal. Yeah. You can't hear it. You can't see it. It's not Superman. It's a microbat. Yeah. And the kids get really excited. The adults get really excited. And you hand them a anabat and off they go trying to hear all the beeps. And we now have ones that show the graphs so we can work out common differences between some of the bats and say that's a little forest bat that's a gold wattle bat that's fabulous so what is the connection with this kind of work this sort of monitoring work and an active research do you guys work closely with you know sort of a, a someone who might consider themselves a professional scientist who's like oh that data that's so amazing thank you i i've been studying this bat i did my phd on mm. the ears of this bat and i want to understand something about it do you guys work a lot in that kind of space uh, not so sure about the bats, but mm. we do have people that request um, particularly our water quality data for projects. So we've just had um, a researcher with um, Melbourne University to um, uh, get some of our information on the turbidity, so the cloudiness of the water, temperature and salinity levels that are um, flowing out into Port Phillip Bay. Uh, and that's related to um, a project that um, the VMPA is actually involved in as well in terms of the uh, Oyster Reef Rehabilitation Project. So we've had um, our data mm. going into some of these research projects and really helping to um, hopefully drive some of the 
the decisions that are made in that space. And what about funneling the data more globally? Do, you, do A lot of these citizen science projects, they seem to be very local, but does all the data come together on a sort of national scale? Yeah, so we try to make our, our information as open as possible. So um, we, we are using our information to um, essentially put together our um, regional kind of plans and data sets. So we're, the data that we're collecting from people like um, Elizabeth goes into um, our uh, waterway um, measurements for, for frog data and also a whole bunch of other different species and it, it basically drives what um, our management does along waterways uh, but we're also sharing our data into broader data sets like the um, Victorian Biodiversity Atlas uh, and they should be feeding into broader um, atlases as well so I think um, the Atlas of Living Australia we have our data feeding into that as well and I believe they've got data sharing agreements with some of those international kind of systems as well so um, yeah we're collecting very much local data but it's got that really strong ability to then be you know accessible by a wide range of people. Uh, Elizabeth, well, do you? How do you see the data come back to you? So you are a source of data, for example, on on frogs. But do you see how your data fits into a bigger distribution? Do you see the larger data set, or is it is it more one way in the in the citizen science part? Well, a lot of our data, apart from that that goes to water, Melbourne Waterways, it goes to the local council, and it supports their strategy plans. And we've just had something recently overturned where Elster Creek and the friends down there that. I do water watch monitoring with, um, had a, a small golf course next to the um, playing fields and the Elster Creek runs through it. The dog fraternity did not want to lose that area to run their dogs in. Um, the golf course mm. wanted to stay. They ended up being able to turn the council's views around because they realised the water quality going through that last portion of Elster Creek was going out into uh, Port Phillip Bay and it had too many nasty industrial chemicals in it Mm. Um, and a lot of our information through Mm. that goes back to Melbourne Water also Mm. helped in that study. It's great I mean I think it's really good for citizens to see that that sort of change happening as a result of the science that they're doing, and yes. and it's um it's extraordinary that you're involved, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today at Triple R, and keep up this great work. I hope you you recruit many more people into citizen science. It's it's something that uh, we haven't done a lot on on the show. Every now and then we we will have something on, but uh, today we've dedicated the whole show to it. And Richard, uh, to you too. Uh, maybe uh, you know we've got five or six people, maybe. Hire a few more, get some more, you know, <laughs> get the big gov to chuck in some more change and help these people out. Sounds like a really good program, series of programs, and the more we the more we do, the better. Thank you very it's much. A pleasure. Cheers. Thank you. Um, folks, we're going to take a break for uh, just some important station announcements, and then we'll be back uh, to close off the show in the last few minutes. Three, triple, Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. We've only got a few minutes left, but we wanted to cross uh, the cross the T's and dot the I's with Lyndon before we got off this citizen science topic. Yeah, because something that I wanted to ask uh, Dr. Lyndon was, say, anyone who's listening to the show right now, what you know, how do they get involved in these citizen science programs? Is there any websites that people can go on and look through the projects and say, hey, I, I'm interested in the wombats or the bats mm. or the water or so forth? Well, that's a great question, especially coming up to National Science Week. We're going to be inundated with amazing activities, but uh, a lot of those activities are kind of one way, hear from a scientist or, you mm. know, talk about something, whereas citizen science is a great way for 
people to get involved in actually doing science and there are lots of different projects that are happening around the country and there's actually a website that you can go to where you can see there are about 600 different projects happening around Australia at the moment, different citizen science ones. Some are small, local ones a lot, like some of the ones we've been hearing today but other ones are huge and you don't actually have to leave your house, you can just go online and sort through them through some photos and and help identify cyclones, Mm. help identify galaxies, all these different things. And so the website, I'm just going to read it out now, it's biocollect.ala.org.au forward slash AXA, A-C-S-A, the Australian Citizen Science Association. Tweet that out. Yeah. So just to recap today, though, it it was EcoConnect, Mm -hmm. the Victorian National Parks Association, Mm -hmm the EPA mm. and Melbourne Water mm. and so you could probably check out those websites as well right absolutely mm. yeah. yeah so nature watch and reef watch and the frog census mm-hmm. uh, and there's Melbourne Water does a lot of other different projects yeah. too and, um, and EcoConnect oh I did check out the sunscreen monitoring thing that mm-hmm. it's like you know volunteers there's times it's really cool it looks pretty straightforward to get involved and 600 projects, I mean, that's a huge number. What percentage of those are sort of really based on conservation? Yeah, that is a, that's, a, that's a thing, isn't it? Because a lot of the projects, especially the ones we've heard today, a lot of them are conservation-based. I guess that's because it's a, it, it's a win-win. You get people out in nature. People enjoy being out in nature. They're there on site. Exactly, local. yeah. And often collecting information, collecting conservation data. If you were just doing that with professional scientists, it would take lifetimes. Mm. You know, you would need to clone yourself a thousand times to, to get out they there. They wouldn't be there that. at the right place exactly. at the right time, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think a large majority of them would be conservation. But from a weather point of view, for example, like Dr Shane was saying before, you can there's a lot of, of ways that you can volunteer uh, to take weather observations. And from my area, which is historical weather observations, there's also some online citizen science projects called Old Weather. There's one called Old Weather where you can help transcribe really old weather records as well. So there's lots of different things that are happening in various scientific spaces. The medical space, Dr Laura, I don't know. You don't hear about it so much. Mm. I mean, I'm sure you can submit, you know, some stool or skin samples somewhere. But um, ethics maybe are a bit there is the, um, the, is it the ABC study on... um, uh, I, I know I've got a spit in the bag somewhere at home where I did this long survey, and I think it's on diabetes or cardiovascular disease or something or other. There was a there's a I'm survey, sure someone can spit and, the bag and this yeah. is this is one that you know you volunteer for, and you provide some saliva samples, and they use that to do a very large amount of research. Yeah, right. um, so there's a few of these going around. They're not as they're not as well known, but mm-hmm. there are a few, and I really need to go and do that because every now and then someone rings me and says, "Hey, we need your spit." Okay. <laughs> I'm like, "Sorry, I know I spent an hour on the survey, but two minutes on the spit's really." knocking me around I'll I guess get to it that's the tension between making sure you keep the science and citizen science yeah. and it's not all just about getting people out in nature but also keeping the citizen involved as well and not that's saying right. hey data source give me that data give me the data yeah. but there's a lot of good stuff and I, I suspect we're going to have a sea of drones flying around at some stage soon and there'll mm-hmm. be a whole but realistically uh, even for the Bureau get a pressure and temperature monitor little device that can plug onto every smartphone and it'll be similar to there's a researcher in California who's doing this with earthquake monitoring using the um, the GPS systems in phones he's got something like five or ten thousand phones operating as earthquake monitoring equipment in some app that is mm. being used over there which is really cool so oh, wow. you know and people just have to have the app and they're doing thing you can use the fact that they're walking around with a mini computer 
Or not many, big computer. Anyway, uh, we're going to have to hand over to the team from that Dr. Ray, thanks very much. It was good fun. To uh, Dr. Laura, good to have you in the country. Absolute pleasure. And Dr. Lyndon, thanks so much for organising today's show. Thanks for letting really me take over the airwaves. I know, this is what happens when I unleash the reins on one of my co-hosts. <laughs> uh, things go wild. Anyway, folks, uh, thanks for listening to Triple R and to Einstein and Gogo. We're going to chat to you again next week. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And stay tuned now for the team from Eat It. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.